Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. The biggest significance of this murder is that it demonstrates very clearly that Russia is a failed state. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Behind the Lines, the new geopolitics podcast with me, Arthur Snell. I'm a former diplomat who now works as a consultant, writer, and podcaster. I'm active in international affairs from Ukraine to Yemen and a few places in between. And in this podcast, I'll be talking to the best informed people out there about geopolitics, about the big things shaking our world now, and about the things that will be in the future. We're going to give you access to real expertise and the things that people aren't talking about but should be. We're going behind the lines. So I'm delighted to be joined for today's emergency episode by Owen Matthews. He's former Moscow bureau chief for Newsweek and author of Overreach, the inside story of Putin's war on Ukraine, which is just out in paperback. Owen's a native Russian speaker and knows more about the country than almost any other British journalist. We're speaking a day after the news, which is both shocking and predictable, of the likely death of Yevgeny Prigozhin, apparently shot down in his private jet by Russian air defense missiles whilst flying between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Owen, welcome. My great pleasure, Arthur. Um, Owen, I think we have to start with uh, our best understanding of what we think the situation is with Prigozhin. Is he in fact dead? There are still people out there suggesting that this all might be just one more twist in the extraordinary kind of conspiratorial world of modern Russia. What, what's your view? Uh, well, I mean, there are uh, a few people out there who think he's not dead, but uh, there are also people out there who think Elvis is not dead. I mean, he's, uh, I think, uh, given that Wagner itself and the, all the telegram channels associated with Wagner have not only reported the news of the crash and of Prigozhin's death, but actually even published epitaphs, there is a, uh, a sort of makeshift uh, Princess Diana-type shrine that's been set up by uh, Wagner fans outside his 
company headquarters in St. Petersburg and Russian state television have also been uh, reporting it. So uh, I think we can pretty definitively say that he is dead, although it is true that as yet there's been no comment neither from the Russian Defense Ministry nor from Putin himself, who's actually been uh, made several speeches uh, primarily concerning his uh, BRICS summit, his virtual appearance at the BRICS summit in South Africa and so on. Uh, no, no official uh, confirmation from the Kremlin, but I think uh, the man is dead. Right. And I was struck by the fact that official Russian uh, news agencies, I think TASS and, and Ria Novosti, seemed to be confirming that the plane had crashed and that he was on it. So that suggests that at some level, at least, the Russian state wants you to think that he's dead. Yes. Um, I think that uh, if he was not dead, that requires a level of of conspiracy, which is uh, unusual even for someone as tricky. And as we know, as such a master of, of disguise, or maybe not such a master of disguise as Evgeny Prigozhin, he certainly has disguises. I'm not sure whether they're masterful. But in order to somehow sort of cheat to death by staging um, the uh, destruction of his aircraft with 10 people aboard, uh, I think is a level of sort of, sort of Moriarty-like uh, escapism that even is not quite capable of. Yeah. So let's 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 focus on on the man and what's happened to him. You you wrote in an article which is went onto the Spectator website yesterday that he was a dead man walking. And of course, in the immediate aftermath of his abortive coup or mutiny or whatever we want to try to call it, his march on Moscow, there was an assumption that he might be arrested straight away and and Perhaps, you know, he, his his life had only a few days to run. And yet, briefly at least, he seemed to have almost been rehabilitated. So what's your best understanding of why there was this odd situation of Prigozhin seemingly being almost forgiven the idea that he could go off to Belarus and he could go around Africa still running his mercenary network? Well, the first thing is to say uh, that actually what happened in uh, in June was really a mutiny, not a coup. Uh, I don't think uh, Brugosian had any serious intention of seizing power. He was trying to make a point uh, about Wagner and how Wagner was treated. So I think mutiny, not coup. But uh, the, the very short answer to your question um, is why Brugosian continued to walk the earth uh, was that Putin was weak. And that's also the answer to uh, the question, why is he now dead? Because he was living proof that Putin is weak. Uh, because if you have a mutineer and a rebel who raises an armed rebellion against the state, then and then you just let him off and do a deal with him and allow him and his men a apparently consequence-free exile in Belarus, as Putin did. That's a sign of something seriously wrong in the Kremlin's security state. Uh, it's clear evidence that to tackle, disarm, uh, destroy the Wagner rebels, that he would not be obeyed. And that's a very seriously threatening position for any commander-in-chief to find himself in. Um, and he was forced to to do a deal. He made, uh, through Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, Putin made Prigozhin some promises. Uh, Prigozhin, uh, Prigozhin's fatal error was that he believed Putin to be a man of his word. And of course, the other... Uh, news which 
which seems to have run at the same time of Prigozhin's death, is, is if I've understood it correctly, the confirmation of the arrest of General Surovikin. Um, who, for those who are not familiar, who is this guy and why is he important in this story? Uh, well, there's been no confirmation he's been arrested. There's been confirmation that he's been removed from his post um, officially. Um, Surovikin was uh, a very prominent Russian general who came to uh, who who uh, became notorious in Syria for commanding Russian operations there. Uh, he was known as General. Armageddon. He basically got nothing very, very much done in Ukraine um, and was rem- quietly removed from his post. Um, but uh, the important uh, role that Suravikin plays in the Prigozhin story is that um, Suravikin is a general of the army, by the way. There is no more senior rank in the Russian army. Um, he, um, he was you know, clearly a sympathizer of Prigozhin. Um, we don't know these things are very opaque exactly what the relationship was. Um, I think we can presume that it's somewhat, fin- that it's at least par- partially financial. Because one of the uh, main things about the Wagner group was that uh, one of the keys to their power and their friends in high places was that in the eight years of, uh, uh, nine years of the Wagner group's existence, uh, throughout their operations in Syria, in uh, Libya, in the Central African Republic, and various other African countries, uh, they you know helped themselves to large tranches of national resources, businesses. You know they were essentially a uh, a version of a sort of medieval company of uh, you know condottieri of soldiers of fortune, yeah. and crucially. Not only Suravikin, but lots of other Russian general officers uh, actually spent time seconded to and working with Wagner. And in the process, they all got very rich. Uh, and in fact, one of the commanders of uh, deputy commanders of Wagner was literally a former deputy defense minister of Russia, which is an extraordinary situation. So he essentially sort of corrupted and bought a whole swathe of the senior officers. And we know um, just from, not just from the revolt itself, the, the, the mutiny itself, but the extraordinary tone, the incredibly aggressive uh, uh, tone that Prigozhin took in his attacks on the Russian Minister of Defense, uh, Sergei Shoigu, on the Chief of the General Staff, uh, Valery Gerasimov, and so on. He literally abused them and said that they should be shot as traitors, literally. Um, and the only way that anyone would be emboldened to make those kind of statements is if he thought that he had very powerful friends. And that, of course, was uh, fatefully put to the test when he actually rebelled, and those friends did not really appear. But Surovikin, to answer your question, uh, was considered to be uh, Prigozhin's highest placed and uh, and most powerful ally, and he's essentially disappeared since uh, since the rebellion has not been seen since. Yeah. You you outlined at the start this point of Putin's weakness, the fact that um, there was not the standard sort of response that you would have to someone who's launched a mutiny, uh, you know, against the armed forces, which would surely be some kind of judicial process or whatever. Um, the other side of this, as you've also described there, were these extraordinary attacks from uh, Prigozhin when he was alive against the defense minister Shoigu, Gerasimov, the, the chief of staff. So within Russia's armed forces, effectively, this, this unbelievable level of, of kind of um, 
uh, altercation. Um, so that leads one to to wonder: uh, somebody gave an order to shoot down a plane. Uh, the, the the reporting seems to point to the idea that this was shot down by Russia's own air defence. In itself, an extraordinary uh, development on on Russian soil. Obviously, um, is this Shoigu's revenge? Do we think, or does this go all the way to Putin himself? That's a very good question. Uh, I mean, just concerning the, uh, the 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 actual method which was used, it's not clear. I mean, there, there's, there has been some other evidence that there was some uh, unusual maintenance being on the plane. Uh, it's something that the now dead stewardess, uh, one of the sort of collateral damage t- turns out of this murder. Uh, the stewardess did report uh, on her social media that there was some, you know, work being done. So there has been speculation that there, there may have been a bomb on the plane. But that's, uh, that, 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 that's, that, that detail is not very important. It's very clear that there was an explosion on board caused either by, by a missile or a bomb and it fell out of the sky. Um, the, the real question that you're asking is a very important one. Who actually ordered this? Mm. We don't know. We don't know. And that is, in fact, makes the whole thing much more scary. Was it Putin's personal revenge? Uh, was it Shoigu's personal revenge? Uh, what does it say about Russia if it wasn't Putin? What does it say about Russia if it was Putin? Uh, these are things that we actually will probably never know. Uh, it's the same debate of, for instance, uh, back in 2015, uh, the former deputy prime minister and prominent uh, Kremlin critic Boris Nemtsov was gunned down in central Moscow. Uh, actually, as it turns out, or the balance of, of evidence seems to be that it was not Putin that ordered Nemtsov to be murdered. It was actually uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, and it was the, the, the shooter was suddenly a Chechen. Uh, it was the president of Chechnya. So uh, it's not really clear, uh, and we'll never know whether it was Putin or not. There's uh, in a various lines of argument you could take saying that it was not Putin, that it was Putin. The, 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 the bottom line is that actually uh, the significance, really, the biggest significance of this murder is that it demonstrates very clearly that Russia is a failed state, that Russia that, that Russia has not been able to have any kind of due process for a man who is a rebel and, and, and a mutineer, except to murder him gangland style. That's the due process Putin style. Yeah. And with that thought ringing in our ears, I'm keen to get your take on how this failed state is administered. Um, because I think there's a perception certainly, you know, among people in, in sort of Western countries that they look at Russia and they see Putin as an all-powerful dictator, an autocrat, maybe, a, you know, a totalitarian who, you know, what he says goes, he gives the orders and people carry them out. But it seems a lot more chaotic than that. And one wonders whether, in fact, Putin is actually in charge at all. Well, I think Putin is in charge insofar as, you know, regardless of who actually gave the order, he's being credited with it. And I think actually the balance of probabilities is, is I think that he did at least approve it, um, this attack. Um, uh, in the short term, he's, Putin has reasserted his authority. Yeah. Uh, insofar as, you know, um, Prigozhin defied him. The fact that he was still alive was a daily uh, proof of Putin's weakness, as we discussed a moment ago. And by having him killed, you know, Putin, you know, becomes top dog again. He becomes 
you know, the, the sort of, uh, the capo who's in charge of, of everything. So, um, you know, the, the counter narrative is, uh, what he has done is essentially, uh, murdered a member of his own, not say, I wouldn't say his inner circle, but certainly an insider having given this person a promise. So if we just, you know, take the mafia analogy, you know, the, 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 Capo de tutti capi, the, 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 the boss has made a deal with a rebellious capo, with a rebellious lieutenant. That rebel has taken the boss at his word and then he's just been murdered. Uh, you know, he's, he's just been sort of, uh, uh, done away with, uh, and his, and his major mistake was believing the boss's word. Where does that leave the credibility of the boss for doing future deals? You know, who, who, who will now trust Putin's word, uh, within that inner circle where, um, what the Russians call panyatia or understandings, uh, and personal loyalty are much more important, of course, than, than the law of the land. Uh, where does that leave, uh, you know, Putin's ability to make, to, to negotiate with, you know, any other potential rebels? Um, I think, uh, in the short term, I think Putin has indeed strengthened his position. In the long term, I think the message for any future challenges to his power is that if you, if you foment a mutiny, you have to, you have to see it through, uh, and actually, you know, go to Moscow and not accept any promises. So in the long term, I think Putin has actually sort of, uh, created a very dangerous precedent for his own future. You, you, you describe Russia as a failed state, and that's, that's quite a sort of striking label to apply to a country with the world's largest nuclear arsenal with, you know, still a, a considerable military power. And of course, immense resources, both sort of physical and, and, and otherwise. Um, with, with this situation of, of Putin uh, breaking those understandings, not, not being trustable, but by surrounded by people who presumably don't trust one another, is, is there a reason to think that someone would try to remove him? Or is that just sort of wishful thinking from, from, from the outside? Uh, I think for the moment is wishful thinking, but, uh, you are right to interrogate and drill down into my characterization of Russia as a failed state, and it deserves a, a little bit more examination. Um, a failed state is a state where it's not necessarily, uh, a, 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 a weak state, although it usually is, but, uh, I, what I mean is specifically, like, there isn't, there are no institutions of the Russian state that are really very functional independently of the personal power of Putin. Yeah. Uh, and that means that, you know, clearly, as we've already discussed, like there's no judicial mechanism that is considered functional to remove, to, to, to punish a lawbreaker like Prigozhin. You have to murder him. Uh, the army doesn't work. It cannot be relied on to do its job, fulfill its oath and, uh, take on an armed rebel. That the army is a is a failed institution. The uh, security services corrupt is doesn't even really begin to, to 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 cover the extent to which the security services under Putin have become a gigantic cash cow and business empire, which exists much more for the enrichment of the securicats that surround Putin and their underlings than anything really to do with the security of the country. Um, so in that sense, Putin's Russia is really fundamentally different 
from the Soviet Union. Because the Soviet Union, at least, you know, uh, until like the very late, late stages, in fact, even right up to the, 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 the very end of the Soviet Union, had strong institutions. It had a functional army. It had a functional, uh, uh, state security service. Um, there, the, you know, it, it had on its own terms a sort of functional judicial system, certainly when it come, comes to sort of ordinary criminals. So, uh, all of those things, uh, don't really pertain in Putin's Russia. It's a failed state in the sense that it's, relies entirely on the personal control of Putin and a very small group of people around him. And, yeah. uh, there is no real, there's nothing really holding it together. In the Soviet Union, you had ideology. I mean, people, I think, were you know, so pretty cynical about the ideology by the end. But nonetheless, it existed. There was a sort of coherent idea of what the state stood for, of what the country stood for, of you know, the values of society. All of those have been completely corroded under Putin. Yeah. And wh- how would you compare that to the situation at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union? Because I suppose you know, a lot of people will, will recall that era and it felt chaotic and unpredictable and institutions seemed to be failing. Is this similar or is this different in the sense that now the institutions themselves uh, are, are, don't even matter anymore? It's not that they're sort of in trouble and un, under-resourced. The answer to this question is actually also part of the answer to the last question is, uh, um, if we're, if we're talking about the end of the Soviet Union or, and also if we're talking about potential challenges and the future and the, the possible collapse of the Putin regime, um, three things really need to pertain or have pertained every time a regime has collapsed in Russia over the last century and a half or 120 years, 110 years. The first is uh, a profound economic crisis. The second has been the, the regime um, has become completely discredited and, un- and dysfunctional. And thirdly, there's been a clear alternative to power. Right. And those three things existed in 1917. Those three uh, conditions existed in 1991. None of them exist today. There right. is no economic crisis to, to speak of. Uh, Russia has done a remarkably good job of uh, insulating itself from sanctions, of getting around sanctions, of selling its oil, um, you know, all the, albeit at a dis- discounted price, of getting around uh, import restrictions and so on. The Russian economy, in fact, is set to uh, grow much, much at a much greater rate than the British economy this year. So um, there's no economic crisis. So far, uh, as long as, uh, I mean, there are, there are setbacks. There are obviously drone strikes in Moscow. Uh, you know, the war is not going incredibly well. But on the other hand, Putin may not be winning it, but he's not dramatically losing it. And in terms of, you know, the projection of power, uh, Prigozhin is kind of a good example. I mean, we, he, Putin is still able to project, you know, sheer brutal lethal force effectively by murdering Prigozhin. So in that sense, actually, uh, the, the state is not yet discredited, discredited. And of course, lastly, and, and uh, very importantly, there is no hint of an alternative power or a challenger, either from inside the elite or outside the elite, um, that could possibly take over or conceivably take over from Putin. It's literally impossible to name anyone who would plausibly fit that bill. Um, so, and, and also, um, Putin's, uh, secret police, um, have actually done a rather good job of, uh, suppressing dissent. I mean, the, the base of dissent is extremely narrow. 
Yeah, there's not sort of mass discontent as there was in ninety one or 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 or, or, or 1917. I don't think Putin's security apparatus will be able to cope with a challenge of that scale. But since the challenge, since the scale of the challenge is very small, the number of potential dissidents and, and opponents is you know tiny. Then uh, they they've been they've been brutally effective at squashing all of that. So um, in that sense, it does not resemble the end of the Soviet Union because there is uh, no clear alternative. There's no hope, really. Um, there's no clear idea. There's no hope of change. There's no clear idea of what Russia needs. You know, it's, it's you know, Russians are not clamoring for more democracy. They're not clamoring to, you know, have Western genes. There's nothing. There's no clear direction for any post-Putin Russia to go towards uh it's just a sort of rather um you know grim sort of uh form of 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 nihilism that seems to have sort of pervaded uh the entire russian population when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. With with that slightly uh, depressing prospect, um, I want to just go back and talk a little bit about Wagner itself, the organization. As you described there, the um, members of the Russian military had effectively, at different times, been seconded into Wagner and, and by, by doing so managed to get fabulously rich. Uh, and Wagner clearly served a kind of purpose as, as a sort of arm of Russia's sort of foreign and security policy. Lots of people know about Wagner's activities across Africa. Well, this plane did not just have Prigozhin on it. As, as you noted, there's collateral damage. And among that were some senior sort of Wagner lieutenants, including this, this chap Utkin, who's, if I'm not mistaken, his own sort of call sign nickname was Wagner, giving, giving the group its name. Um, so is Wagner, the organization, the, the, the business, whatever you want to call it, is that, is that now finished as well? Um, I, um, I don't think it's, it's necessarily finished because I think the vultures will descend pretty quickly, um, because it's lucrative. Uh, there are lots of people waiting in the wings to take over, to dismember it. Um, I think in Africa, um, there's lots of its operations that will continue under new management. Um, uh, the, the, the important thing about Wagner to Putin really was, and it was really created as a deniable force that he could use to actually get people into Ukraine. Uh, first of all, that was, that was the inception of Wagner and also into Syria and have a deniable, uh, sort of deniable arm's length, um, uh, military force. Uh, we tend to forget in our discussions of Wagner is how tiny Wagner is. 
Mm. And in how, how tiny Wagner was, in fact, before, uh, before the, the Ukraine war when they started recruiting massively. Um, I mean, Putin notionally, if you count everybody, including, you know, policemen and, you know, strategic rocket forces and everybody who's wears a uniform in Russia, uh, Russian, uh, Putin notionally commands three and a half million men and women in his armed forces and security forces. Yeah. I mean, uh, and Wagner is 20,000. Yeah. So it's sort of ultimately ridiculous and, and, and striking that, you know, of those three and a half million, it's only the, the few tens of thousands that were recruited by Wagner, you know, most of them very recent recruits, most of them literally criminals recruited out of jails, uh, that actually found themselves to be the most effective military force in, in the, in the Ukraine war. Uh, we, 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 we tend to, I mean, hiding behind that term effective. How were they effective? Their tactics. There was nothing effective about their strategy. There was nothing good about the troops. They were effective because they employed human waves mm. to take over Bakhmut, which was spectacularly bloody. So in that sense, their only real sort of tactical operational battlefield advantage of the Wagner troops was an absolute ruthlessness and you know, a willingness to, you know, shoot, shoot their own men in the back if they, if they retreated. So, and the fact that these people were, uh, you know, literally being released from jail and would go back to jail or would be, have their heads smashed with hammers if they, if, if they, if they betrayed or defied their commanders. So, you know, that's a sort of level of, you know, very sort of dumb motivation that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, very basic animal motivation. And that's actually been, so, you know, and, and that, 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 that was Wagner's secret source. It wasn't, they were some sort of elite commando SAS brilliant. They, they were, they were not very good soldiers, but they were led by somewhat, uh, efficient, um, effective uh, commanders. And they themselves, you know, were, uh, willing to be used as cannon fodder. That, um, so, um, if we talk about, I mean, the, 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 the Wagner have not been in the line of battle since the 18th of May when they actually withdrew from, from Bakhmut. Yeah. Um, they, uh, the, the actual loss operationally to Russian military strength is, is pretty marginal. Um, their, their, their point was that they actually were had this personal leadership, personal loyalty to their leader, to Evgeny Prigozhin and to Utkin himself. Um, and, uh, the more significant and sinister thing going forward is that it was not just Wagner's troops and officers that were inspired by Prigozhin's message and his criticism of the regular army. It was plenty of Russian regular officers and men too. And that was the proximate cause of Putin, of, of Putin allowing Prigozhin off the hook because, uh, Many people, including civilians in Rostov-on-Don, saw Prigozhin as a hero, as a man who sort of spoke truth to power and actually got something done and kicked some Ukrainian backside while everyone else was 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 busy messing about and stealing. Yeah, and it's, it's very striking to recall those what seemed to be ordinary citizens of Rostov kind of applauding Wagner as as they marched towards Moscow. And, and, and that must have been... To Putin and, and his sort of immediate entourage, a pretty terrifying sight. Most certainly. And actually that, 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 that was really the, um, the big takeaway. I mean, lot, lots of my Russian liberal friends were, you know, cheering for, for, for Prigozhin and saying like, you know, go get him, cowboy. But actually, you know, the people who were cheering, Prigozhin were cheering him, not because they're against the war, but because they're for the war. Yeah. 
it was a pro-war demonstration. Prigozhin is a war hero. They were cheering someone who they regarded as someone who was the, as a man who was like the only effective military leader in their war against, 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 uh, against Crimea. And, uh, frankly, uh, you know, this, Death cult that Wagner that, that was Wagner that, that they're glorifying in the they're executing traitors with sledgehammers and so on. Uh, you know these people are literal fascists. You know they are. They, this this is a very very dark, terrifying, scary force, and it's it's extremely dark and scary that Russians think that, they, that those guys are great and would cheer them. We uh, mustn't forget that you know his rebellion was you know not really so much anti-Putin as you know, as a you know anti-corrupt leadership of the army, and he Prigozhin frequently called for mass mobilization for like more arms and men to be thrown into the fight to achieve total victory in Ukraine. So the uh, although Prigozhin himself is gone. Uh, it remains extremely worrying that there are lots of people who admired Prigozhin in both in civilian and military life, uh, because those people are not against the war. They're terrifying ultranationalists, and we definitely don't want them anywhere near power. And there is you know, one of the Russia's possible futures is to 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 to, to slide into uh, you know a proper fascist situation. And in that analogy, uh, Vladimir Putin is not Hitler. Vladimir Putin is like, you know, is Kaiser Wilhelm II. He's like the, you know, the, the idiot who gets his country into an unwinnable war, which is followed by humiliating peace. And then it's followed by an actual <laughs> rise of, 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 a, of, of a sort of truly ultra, ultra nationalist, chauvinist sort of proto fascist, uh, leader. Well, with that slightly terrifying uh, prospect, albeit it, it's, of course, it's only one version of the future. My final question is whether this really has any impact on Russia's war on Ukraine. And of course, we both know that the Ukrainian counteroffensive has uh, certainly not, uh, it hasn't achieved its, its sort of early promise, one might say, and, and some are saying that it's, it's really sort of ground to a halt. Uh, of course, as you noted there, Wagner is not in the field anymore. So is this, is this kind of irrelevant to what's going on in Ukraine or does it, does it matter? Um, I don't think it's operationally relevant or important. I think, you know, Wagner is, is, is a spent force. Uh, Wagner was actually already arguably a spent force at the end of May because they had suffered such extreme losses and they were being, you know, clearly, you know, uh, undersupplied and attacked, uh, bureaucratically and in fact, even physically <laughs> shelled by the Russian army. So actually, uh, I, I don't think Wagner is, is, is really a big deal. Uh, the, the, they became stars because Nothing, you know, because no one else was 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 going anywhere. They took you know the rather insignificant town of Bakhmut, you know, after a long and bloody battle, and they, you know, the Russian military bloggers and and state uh, media sort of bigged them up uh, because there was nothing else to big up. Yeah. Um, but actually, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Wagner was you know only a very very tiny part of the whole Russian army, and um, I don't think operationally this is going to make much difference at all. Um, I think. Um, the Ukrainians, I, there was a, a senior advisor to Vladimir Zelensky, a chap called Mikhailo Podolyak, said that what we're witnessing is a new time of troubles in Russia. And this is a new 
form of 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 of, uh, of domestic rule, and he predicted that right. This is a the, the beginning of a sort of gigantic internecine bloodletting blood inside the uh, Putin regime. Um, I personally think that's somewhat exaggerated and, and wishful thinking, to be honest. But uh, um, I think in the, uh, really there are other much more important factors in the, in the uh, Ukraine war that are going to play a much larger role. Primarily, I think uh, the, um, the constancy and a quantity and quality of uh, weapon supplies from the West. I think that's the only variable that can really change because barring a major collapse of morale and um, you know physical collapse of the front of the Russian front line, which you know doesn't seem to be on the cards. I mean, one should never say never, but um, the uh, the only thing that the, the only metric that really changes is the ability of the of the Ukrainians to uh, you know get have the kit and manpower and uh, military nous to push through and break through and and actually gain territory. But as we as you rightly pointed out, that hasn't happened yet in the two and a half months of the summer offensive, and they're running out of time to do so. So uh, the very short answer to your question is, I don't think that uh, um, Prigozhin's death is going to make a uh, is going to play a a very serious role in the end game of this war. Right. Well, Owen, thank you so much for talking to me to, on this extraordinary day. Uh, as ever, the the developments of the, of the last 500 days since Putin made the tragic error of trying to invade Ukraine have continued to shock us. And this is yet another one of those days. And it's been great to have your input. So thank you. My great pleasure, Arthur. Thank you for listening to this first ever episode of Behind the Lines. If you found it interesting, please spread the word and give us a positive review. And join me next week when I'll be speaking to Dr. Matthew Ford, author of the book Radical War, about the implications of the Prigozhin killing, about the war on Ukraine, and about the radical transformations of modern warfare. That's all for now. See you next week. Behind the Lines with Arthur Snell has been a Viner Street production. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Need to stock up on any weather wardrobe staples? Check out American Giant for hoodies, jackets, sweats, and more pieces you can wear anywhere, all made right here in the USA. Go to American-Giant.com and use code ANYSTYLE24 for 20% off your order. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.